Just a quick reminder that the information provided in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. We're not registered dietitians or doctors or anything like that, but rather just two university students who are interested in these topics. Therefore, everything we talk about is through our own research and not any qualification. We'll be talking about contraception today, so if you find this particularly triggering, then do feel free to skip this episode. Please do not take this as medical advice and talk to your own medical team to suit your own unique health needs. Hello everyone, welcome back to The Growth Medium. I'm Mim. And I'm Sarah. And today we're here to help educate you and grow your mindset through presenting you different opinions through a scientific lens. We've got a bit of a saucy episode today. Saucy. (laughs) Okay, I like it. (laughs) We're going to be talking about contraception. We're briefly going to go over different types of contraception. And as always, if this is a bit too much information, because this will be a packed one, we will have all the information in our show notes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that being said, today we've got a very special guest with us, uh, Dr. Cindy Farmer. So she can answer some of your questions and give a little bit of a summary on the different types of contraceptions there are. Cindy, it's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the things that you do? Yes, of course. So I work as an associate specialist in uh, a clinic in Bristol, uh, which specializes in sexual and reproductive health care. And my particular area of interest is in something called complex contraception, uh, whereby I sort of see individuals who have contraceptive needs that may be a little bit more difficult to manage in primary care. So they come to me, um, and I hopefully address those. Um, And so yes, this is just a bit of a disclaimer for anyone listening, obviously, because we're talking about contraception we're going to have to talk about sex um hopefully that's not going to offend anybody um but we're just going to kind of present the facts in a very sort of matter of fact way um and hopefully um let people decide that's really interesting i haven't really heard much about complex contraception until i started researching for this episode so as you mentioned complex contraception is something for um, people who may not get what they need at like a gp or a sexual health clinic maybe how did you find yourself interested in it well mem you see i've i've got a real passion um that women should be able to have the freedom to choose when and how often they have sex and i they should be able to protect themselves from the unwanted effects of that in the form of unplanned pregnancies and sexually transmitted infections. Um, and I know that I think that there's a tendency to almost dismiss contraception because it's sort of sometimes seen as a taboo subject. Even in medical school, only a small proportion of the syllabus is dedicated to covering this. Um, and so consequently, I think it's done very well, actually, um, in a lot of areas. So part of my remit is not just kind of um, making making sure that individuals can get their contraceptive needs. But I also am involved in making sure that GPs are educated, that nurses are educated um, in this. Uh, And so I have a role in the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health Care. And one of my kind of the things that I do is making sure that there are qualifications out there that people can get to that if they did want to be able to provide contraception in a really well and to a high standard, um, that they can do our qualifications and, and, and provide a really good service that meets the needs of people yeah no I think that's really important because especially with um 
new goals of the NHS, which is personalization of medicine and making sure everyone has tailored care. Um, so yeah, definitely. Um, if we were to go into the different types of contraceptions a little bit, generally there's six types of contraception and these are long-acting reversible so that would be the implant or IUD uh, hormonal contraception and that would be the pill then we have the barrier methods like the condom uh, and then we have uh, emergency contraception plan b fertility awareness and last one permanent contraception yeah and I feel like the pill is probably one of the more popular forms of uh, hormonal contraception. It's something that we talk about a lot in my friend groups at my uni. And I think a lot of people are still quite worried about the effects of the pill. And we'll kind of touch on that later in the episode. But don't worry, we will touch on um, all different types of contraceptions today. And we will link any notes we have or show in the show notes for more information on our, on our website. So let's get started. Let's begin with the long-acting contraception, as I said, like the implant. And uh, these typically last for five years, and then the IUD lasts for three, five, or even ten years sometimes. Uh, so, Dr. Cindy, is this what you're? This is what you're specialized in the the specific IUD and the 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 implants, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And sorry, sorry, I don't want to correct you, but the implant actually is three years, not five okay, years. Okay. No, that's good to know. So, yeah, so the implant is basically just a rod that's about four centimeters in length, um, and it's just underneath the um, the arm of somebody. So usually, kind of you know where the the elbow between the elbow and the armpit, it's kind of fitted about eight to ten centimeters from the elbow, and it's a really effective form of contraception. It works by preventing your ovaries from releasing an egg. Um, so if there's no egg that's been released, then there's nothing for the sperm to fertilize, and that's how it stops you getting pregnant. Um, and what's great about the implant is that once it's in you can forget about it for three years you don't have to worry about checking it um, you can just trust as long as you can feel that it's in your arm you can trust that it's there and that it will be providing you with reliable contraception now there are some forms of medication that can interact with the implant and reduce its effectiveness so it's really important we always tell people that actually if you're going to be started on anything new that you let your gp know or whoever is giving you the medication that you do have an implant in your arm um so they can just do a quick cross check and make sure that there is no interaction uh, but apart from that really there's nothing else that would um, reduce the effectiveness of the implant oh wow so the implant I'm assuming there's hormones in that rod right there's a progesterone in there and that kind of how does that work um, to prevent uh, pregnancy Okay, so the implant, as you say, releases a small amount of hormone. Um, it's a hormone called etonorgestrel, which is a type of progestogen. Um, so progestogen is the term that we use for synthetic progesterone. So the hormone is released and then obviously has to travel to your ovaries. And then once it gets to your ovaries, it works by preventing the ovaries from releasing um, the egg. Um, and it does that by impacting on the LH FSH sort of cycle. So LH and FSH are hormones that are released by your brain and that act on the ovary. Um, and the implant hormones basically disrupt that connection um, and, and stop the ovaries from releasing an egg that way. Okay, perfect. And that's similarly to how the hormonal IUD works as well, right? They've also got a form of progesterone in that IUD. Yes. Yes, that's right. So the so we tend to call the hormonal um, IUD an IUS. Actually, we call it an IUS because it stands for intrauterine system. Okay. Yes, that also contains a hormone. Um, again, a progestogen called levonorgestrel. But 
like the implant, the IUS, or sometimes called the intrauterine system or Mirena, that actually works mainly by affecting the lining of your womb, so the endometrial layer. Um, and so actually the vast majority of people that have an IUS will still continue to release an egg every month. Only about a quarter of people actually stop ovulating. So the, the main way that the IUS works is by affecting that lining of the womb and thinning it down. And so people that have an IUS often stop having periods altogether because that lining is normally what you build up every month and then you shed it when you get a period. Because the IUS stops that from happening, it, 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 it provides good contraception and it also can stop people from having periods, which is useful if you normally suffer from very heavy periods. The IUS is actually a form of treatment for people that, heavy, that have heavy menstrual bleeding. Okay. And uh, as opposed to a copper IUD, the copper IUD has no hormones at all, right? And that generally is better for people who might have side effects from the IUS, as you mentioned, because there's some research to suggest that uh, side effects like headaches, acne, that type of thing is much less on the copper IUD, perhaps because there's not a hormone there. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. So the copper IUD is useful for people who want to avoid using any hormonal form of contraception. The main difference between the copper IUD and the IUS, though, is apart from the, the hormone content, is that the IUD actually tends to make periods heavier. They can be heavier, longer, and more painful. So if you already suffer from very heavy periods, you probably don't want to go for the, the bulk standard IUD. So there are certain forms of IUS that contain really very minuscule amounts of hormone and those are the ones Sarah that you mentioned at the start that maybe only last for three years those ones contain really just very very tiny amounts of hormone in in them um, and so if somebody wants to avoid using hormones but equally wants to avoid having heavy periods that's the method of contraception that we would encourage them to consider because it's the least amount of hormone you can get away with without having to um, have the possible heavy bleeding associated with the IUD definitely yeah so for in terms of the IUD or the IUS, so how would one go about getting um, getting one implanted? So we talk about having a, a, an, an IUD or an IUS inserted um, and we talk about the implant as the, uh, the implant. So slight, you know, just slightly different in how we refer to these things. Um, but basically, a lot of GP surgeries um, do offer IUD or IUS insertion. Uh, you just have to go along um, and have an initial consultation with them. And that may be done over the phone. Uh, and then after that initial consultation, you're then booked in for the procedure. Uh, and the procedure itself is very straightforward. Um, it usually only takes about sort of 15 minutes uh, being in the clinic. Uh, and we encourage people to take a little bit in the way of painkiller afterwards because it can be uncomfortable, but it's generally very well tolerated. Now, in some people, the GP or the practice nurse can't fit the IUD or the IUS, either because it's just a little bit tricky or, you know, there might be some certain complexities around that particular um, case. And that's when they would refer to us. Um, and that's a sort of case that I would then pick up. Um, and fit in my clinic. And in terms of how the IUDs work, the copper IUD is more of a barrier method, isn't it? And the hormonal IUD kind of works uh, on a hormonal level, similarly to the implant, I'm assuming? So the IUD works by creating a hostile environment in the womb. So it prevents the sperm from being able to get to the to the egg um, because the copper ions in the copper IUD are toxic to sperm. So sperm can't, don't like it, can't get past it, and can't fertilize the egg. Um, the IUS, as I mentioned, kind of 
thinned down that lining of your womb and it also thickens your cervical mucus. So it actually can also prevent a little bit of a barrier because the sperm can't get through that plug of mucus um, and that stops it from, from again being able to get to the egg. So both the IUD and the IUS um, primarily act to prevent fertilization from occurring. Um, and the IUS has that secondary mechanism of action to thin down that lining of your womb um, and prevent any implantation from occurring as well. Okay, so if we were to move on from implants and IUDs and IUSs and go into the barrier type of uh, a contraception, um, so that's predominantly the male and the female condom. Yeah, and they're quite good because they protect against STIs as well. So I hear a lot of physicians suggesting to take um, perhaps a hormonal form of a contraception or something like that, and the condom as well to help protect against the STIs. That's correct. So we do we do encourage people if they are in a new sexual relationship um, to think about using condoms as a backup um, because condom male condoms are the only form of contraception that can reliably protect against STIs as well. So they're contraceptive and they're also protective against STIs. From a contraceptive point of view, however, they are not the most reliable form of contraception, um, which is why I think probably, Mim, you said you've heard physicians suggesting taking a hormonal method as well as the condom. And that's because the hormonal methods are and the IUDs as well, are more reliable at preventing pregnancy and then condom preventing you from picking up a sexually transmitted infection. And then there is one different type of contraception, which would be natural contraception and fertility awareness. What do you think of this and its effectiveness in general? Well, I think if used correctly, Fertility awareness methods definitely do have a place in the kind of the repertoire of contraceptive methods that we have available. But I think the danger is that it's been oversimplified a little bit. Um, there's been a lot, there have been a lot of apps that have come out, um, which have said that they're sort of 99% effective. And a lot of those apps just rely on you putting in your calendar dates. So as in the day of the period, and then it works out when, when is a safe time to have sex. But actually true fertility awareness relies on more than just calendar days. It relies on you being able to uh, check your temperature reliably every day. It relies on you being able to feel for your cervical mucus um, and to work out a difference between the early menstrual mucus, which is thin, slippery and stretchy, and the the later uh, mucus, which is thick, um, and cloudy. And it also relies on you being able to feel the position and texture of your cervix. Um, it also relies on you having very regular cycles. So there are a lot of parameters that need to be kind of um, followed in order for fertility awareness methods to be successful. Uh, so although they do have a place, um, I always discuss it in the context of, you know, how reliable do you think you would be at being able to measure all of these other parameters? Because actually, if you don't go to bed and get up at the same time every day, for instance, the temperature measurement becomes invalid. Um, you have to have had a certain amount of sleep before you check the temperature. You can't have had any alcohol the night before because that will invalidate the, the temperature. So there's lots of things that can actually interfere with it. So I think fertility awareness methods are probably useful for people that wish to spend their pregnancies. Um, so for people who actually pregnancy wouldn't be a disaster, um, but maybe just not right now, maybe in a, in a little while. So for those individuals, I'd kind of say yes, fertility awareness methods are great. Um, but if you were to say to me, actually, I really wouldn't want to get pregnant at this moment in time, then I would actually be encouraging to think about a different method. 
Definitely. And I guess that's the thing with natural conce- uh, contraception and fertility awareness, isn't it? There's, um, I think I heard, I listened to an episode of Birth, Baby and Beyond. I think that's what the podcast is called. And um, it's a podcast of nurses and doctors, I believe, who are OBGYNs. And they were talking about how if you do like the pullout method, there's still um, some pre-ejaculation that can um, come and that has sperm in it as well. And that could lead you to becoming pregnant. Yes, absolutely. So we don't consider the withdrawal method as an effective form of contraception at all. Um, and actually, we know that the when a man does ejaculate, the first few drops of semen actually contain the highest concentration of sperm. So, and, and we know that from fertility studies. So actually, you know, when we're seeing people in infertility clinics who are, who, you know, couples that are having trouble conceiving, um, we deliberately ask for a, a two-stage sample from, from the male. Um, and as I say, the first bit of sperm is the bit that contains, the first bit of semen is the bit that contains the highest amount of sperm that is used um, for subsequent treatment. So actually, the withdrawal method really is very risky. Um, there was any amount of um, ejaculate that were to escape um, as I say that would be the the riskiest bit. Me either. Um, So if we were to talk about the our final different if we go if we were to go back to different types of contraception and our final one being the hormonal contraception. So there's the combined contraceptive pill which is a estrogen and progesterone and then the mini pill which is progesterone only so can you tell us the difference between how these two work yes sure so they both actually work by preventing ovulation Um, but with the combined pill you've obviously got the two hormones the combined is a combination of as you said Sarah estrogen and progestogen and the progesterone only pill is just progestogen Um, so with the combined pill traditionally this was taken as a three week on one week off regime um, whereas the progesterone only pill has always been an everyday regime so what you take every day without any break now there is no reason actually for you to have a break with the combined pill so you could take it continuously if you wanted um, but the reason that three week on one week off regime was introduced is because the time when the pill was first kind of introduced into the country, um, in order to get the buy in of society, uh, they wanted it to, they wanted women to who were taking it to still look like they were having a menstrual cycle. In, in other words, they wanted them to kind of look like they weren't using any form of contraception. Because when contraception was first introduced into the UK, the only people that could actually have it legally were married women. And actually, if you think about it, they're probably the group of women that, you know, contraception is very important for. But nowadays, if you think about it, actually, everybody needs contraception, not just people that are married. And so it's really interesting politically when the pill was introduced, they had to do that to make it more acceptable to the church and to society. Um, So, you know, there's no reason why you'd need to have a bleed with the combined pill. So actually, there are different regimes that are now being introduced, uh, which involve taking the pill continuously and only having a break when you start to get some spotting. And rather than having the full seven day break, you can actually just have a four day break, um, allow your body to have that bleed that it probably is wanting to have and then restart the pill a little bit earlier. And the other benefit for doing that is because if you extend that seven day break by more than seven days, actually, there's a risk then that your ovaries, which are being suppressed by the pill, could start to wake up and release an egg. 
All right. So if you're late restarting your pill, if you're late by even a day, there's a chance that your ovaries could start to kind of develop a little bit of activity. So if you reduce that pill-free interval from seven days to just four days, even if you're late restarting it by a day or two, you can still be fairly reassured the ovaries are kind of still being kept quiet and dormant. Um, so that's the other reason why actually we are advocating these new um, pill-taking regimes, also known as tailored regimes. So, and it seems to me like I can imagine the kind of uprising, as you said, in the olden times, the uprising from the church where, olden when, times. yeah, <laughs> when the contraception, the 60s. When, when the contraceptive method, methods were introduced because it, it was new to society back then. Yeah, even now there's quite a few there's so many there's a lot of controversy surrounding the pill because of the side effects that it can have for like there's a lot of side effects that it can have and also a lot of there's a lot of outrage in doctors perhaps over prescribing the pill despite knowing the effects that they can have particularly to teenagers who may not yet be sexually active what do you think of this well, I think it's important to remember that there are a lot of added benefits from being on the pill besides being used for contraception. So there's a condition called endometriosis, which can cause painful periods. Um, and often that will come on, particularly in, in young individuals who are starting their periods, the periods can be very painful. And the pill actually can help with that. And sometimes when your periods are very painful and really bad, that can mean that you end up missing days at school, or you miss out on your social activities. So again, by by being on the pill and being able to treat that, it means that you're not missing out on your important education. The pill can also help with your skin. So again, if people suffer from very bad acne um, or hirsutism, which is where they can have excess hair, again, that can have a very negative impact on your emotional state and your confidence and your well-being emotionally. So being on the pill can, again, help with that. Um, some people have naturally very heavy, heavy periods throughout their life. The pill, again, tends to reduce that. You can get less benign breast disease as well from being on the pill. So there are lots of benefits to being on the pill apart from contraception perception and it's important that when you do prescribe the pill, that you do an adequate assessment to make sure that it is a safe method for that individual. So it's really important that you check to make sure that they don't have any contraindications, so any medical conditions that would make the pill unsafe. Um, but as long as you do that careful assessment, and as long as you teach somebody how to take the pill correctly, I think it's, it's appropriate that it is used as widely as it is. So I think it's quite obvious that when it comes to contraception, there's not really one fit for every person. It should be kind of, well, I don't know if it should, well, okay, this is like a non-medical opinion, so disclaimer, but I think that when it comes to contraception, it should be quite a tailored approach to the person. So I think, Cindy, this is what you're quite interested in, aren't you? Um, I'm assuming that you've had a lot of patients who've had perhaps primary care in contraception, tried to choose a method, but it didn't work out for them. How do you, what do you do to help people who struggle finding the right type of contraception? Okay, so I think it's really important to um, have a frank and open discussion with somebody and to find out actually what are their priorities. So what do they want to get out of their form of contraception? Um, and also to find out how important it is for them to not get pregnant. Uh, so because if, if I were to have a bunch of medical students in front of me, and I were to ask them to list the features of an ideal contraceptive, the first 
thing that invariably they always say is that it has to be effective. So, you know, because obviously if you want to prevent pregnancy, you want something that's going to be the most effective way of preventing pregnancy. But if I, but in the real world, um, that is not what's on the top of everybody's list. Because if it were, then the long acting methods would be used by everybody. And we know that they're not. So we have to appreciate as, as medical professionals that actually there are other priorities that people have. So it might be that they want something that they can use discreetly without everybody knowing about. It might be that they want something that can give them added benefits. So like the combined pill and helping with their skin or their acne. It might be that they want something that doesn't cause any side effects. So if they're particularly prone to, to headaches, they don't want a method that's going to increase their risk of headaches, for example. Or if they're particularly prone to heavy periods, they're going to want something that isn't going to worsen that. So you need to really sit somebody down and work out, you know, what their priorities are. It's also important to understand a little bit about their lifestyle. So for example, we have people that have very chaotic lifestyles that come in, um, either through their shift patterns at work, you know, they might work where they're flying, um, and they're crossing time zones, which would make taking the pill at the same time every day a little bit confusing, because, you know, would they be working to the UK time zone or to the new time zone of the country they're in, things like that. Um, we see people that are homeless or sofa surfing, and who again, you know, don't want to have to carry around packets of pills that they could easily lose and misplace. So getting again, some understanding about the where they're coming from um, can help direct us in terms of, you know, advising on the most appropriate form of contraception. We also see people who are commercial sex workers, um, who again, don't want to use a method of contraception that might cause them to bleed because that would interfere with their work, for instance. So again, so it's so it's taking all of these things into account and really, as you said, personalizing and individualizing that consultation to make sure that it's a shared decision making process, whereby I'm kind of saying what I think is safe for them. Um, and I'm not kind of going to be presenting them with an option that is unsafe. But they're kind of making the choice and the decision jointly with me how often do you find people struggle with finding the most suitable type of contraception for their needs very often um and i think it's you know it it it's partly because I think when people go to their GPs in primary care, um, GPs are, are so heavily inundated and they only have 10 minutes to have that consultation. You know, that's how long your average GP consultation is and sometimes less. Um, whereas for me, within my clinic, I have a little bit longer. I have the luxury of having a bit more time, which means I can just sit somebody down, talk to them, you know, really get an understanding of their ideas, their concerns, their expectations. And then I can kind of have a discussion with them and explain the different methods in a little bit more detail. And usually this, the the evidence says that actually, if you do counsel people appropriately about the method of contraception, they're more likely to stick with it. Um, and so we know that particularly with the implant, for example, which actually notoriously can cause unpredictable bleeding in the people that use it. And that's one of the most common reasons why people will ask to have the implant taken out sooner than the three years. But the studies show that if you sit somebody down at the start and explain that unpredictable bleeding is a feature of the implant, and you can manage their expectations that way, they're more likely to stick with it. And they're more likely to tolerate um, a little bit of unpredictability in their bleeding. I feel like they're mentally prepared that way to expect what's what's meant to be, what's going to happen. So we sent out a questionnaire to gain a little bit of an insight uh, on people, what people wanted uh, answered regarding contraception. And um, so the first question is, why do some people react badly to birth control and others not? Okay. Well, yeah, I think, you know, it comes down to the fact that we are also individual and we all have different health beliefs um, and we all have different priorities when it comes to what we want out of contraception. Um, and so I think for some, it's kind of, it's 
thinking, well, what does what what does it mean when they say they're not getting on with their method? And that's one of the things that I always try and unpick. You know, are they not getting on with it because it's causing them side effects? Are they not getting on with it because they're not remembering to take it? Are they not getting on with it because of the impact on their bleeding? So it's really important not to just take at face value what somebody says, but to actually try and kind of, you know, have that professional curiosity and delve a little bit deeper and try and understand, you know, in what way are they not tolerating or suiting this particular method and then only by doing that can I then unpick it and think okay so this is the issue let's see if we can try and address it that particular bit of it so a common concern when it comes to birth control is that it can potentially lower your fertility um do you have any recommendations for people who are scared of um, reducing their chances of becoming pregnant when deciding a contraceptive method Yes. Okay. So the only form of contraception that has evidence that it causes a delay in your return of fertility is the injection. So the injectable method, Depo-Provera. That's the only method. All of the other methods we believe to be immediately reversible. So once you stop them within about six weeks, your natural cycles should kick in. All right. So if I'm seeing somebody um, and they're perhaps in their mid 30s and they're thinking that they might want to start a family in the next couple of years, I will say to them, I don't think the injection is going to be an adequate. OK, so someone on the survey said that the pill caused them to have low libido and a low mood and then implants make them nervous. So what could be a better alternative other than condoms? So I think the thing about um, hormonal methods of contraception is that people can report things like low mood, um, anxiety, reduced libido. Um, you know, they can report, report a whole range um, of different effects. There isn't any evidence to say that any one of these methods actually causes any of these things. Um, so again, when I see people who report these things, I, I try and unpick um, and try and understand whether the symptoms that they're describing are truly related to the method of contraception or whether there are other things that are going on in that person's life that could be contributing um, to those symptoms. And the other thing as well that's, that I think is important to remember when we talk about libido and the pill is that, yes, for some people, the pill can, you know, people do report that the pill can reduce the libido. But for others, actually, they say that it can increase the libido because they're no longer constrained by the fear of getting pregnant. Um, and that causes a sense of release and, and allows them to relax and enjoy um, sexual activity much more. So it can actually go both ways. Um, but what I tend to do when I see people who do report negative side effects is we kind of say okay well let's try let's try you on something else so one pill might cause you to have low libido but actually there's a whole host of different preparations of pill um, that we can try with a slightly different combination of estrogen and progestogen that we can try to see if that has a, a slightly different impact on you um, and often it's a, a case of trial and error because as I say the science doesn't support a direct link um but we know that everybody's different and we know that some people do report this so we we kind of try experiment with different pills and try and find something that is eventually suitable again it's all down to personalization of medicine and everything so if we talk about male contraception and right now there's only really the condoms and vasectomies as clinical options um so the question is whether pharmaceutical male contraception is realistic and likely option in the near future whether or not it is. This is something that gets asked 
a lot. Um, and it's often the subject of uh, lectures whenever we attend kind of, you know, contraceptive conferences internationally. Um, there's obviously a lot of interest in this because um, a lot of people think, well, why should it only be one particular sex that has to bear the brunt of the contraception? Um, why can't it be shared? So I think a lot of work is going into this. Um, for years and years and years and years now, um, work has gone into working the male pill, the male injection. There's um, another kind of um, almost like a mechanical blockage that's being developed in India. It's still a long way off. And when people ask me about this, I always say it's probably not going to be for at least another five to 10 years um, on the market before we get a commercially viable product. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies did come very close to developing a male pill. But when it went into phase three of the trials, they found that actually there was an increased risk of suicide amongst the people that were taking it. So naturally, it was withdrawn. Um so I think we're just still a very long way away from it at the moment. Um, and I think the other thing to just bear in mind is that although on the one hand, you do get people that are really lobbying for this to come along, on the other, there are some skeptics out there that say, well, you know, would I really trust um, a man who said that they were on the pill uh, when actually if, I, if a pregnancy were to occur it wouldn't be them that bears the consequences of that so you know so there are skeptics out there um, I think that there will be you know there, there is a demand for it and there will be um, the opportunities to provide choice if, if male contraception comes on the market but it's just not something on the immediate horizon. And just to end off, last question, and I think this is probably what's going to be most useful to our listeners. What piece of advice can you give to young people in terms of contraception and sexual health? So it's really important that to know, firstly, when it comes to having sex, that a lot of sexually transmitted infections don't cause any symptoms. So if you have sex with somebody new and you haven't used the condom, it's really important to think about getting a test done. Okay, a test for STIs. It's really important before you even start having sex to think about contraception and to think about preventing the chances of you getting pregnant. Um, so having that discussion even before you begin sexual activity is a good idea. Um, and certainly would not be frowned upon by the person that you're speaking to within the clinic. It would, it would most definitely be encouraged. And it also would just allow you to have a bit of time to kind of work, navigate your way through the different methods and work out which one is the right one for you. That's, that's great advice. That sounds like sound advice. Take Write it down, people. It's really important. <laughs> it is really important to have this awareness and to make sure you're, you're looking after your body and you're aware of it in all, all manners of form. Um, so I think that would be the best place to end off today. Thank you so much for being here to, with us, Cindy. We learned a lot about contraception. We learned a lot about the political situation before and many, many more side effects and the impacts of these different types of contraception. You're very welcome. Thank you once again for inviting me. Yeah, and thank you everyone for listening. We know this has been a longer episode than normal, but it was really interesting. And if you have any more questions about contraception, we can definitely do another episode. We haven't even touched vasectomies or sterilization yet. So that'll, that'll be for another one. Uh, we'll be linking all our references in the show notes as normal, and there'll be more information on our Instagram at The Growth Medium and on our website as well. We can't wait to have you next week where it will be our finale episode, our final episode. I can't believe season one has gone by so quickly. <laughs> yes, but thank you again, Sidi, for speaking with us today. And thank you for everyone listening. Be sure to rate and review this podcast and we'll see you next week. Until then. Bye. Bye.